This episode was originally finished in early May of 2021 and was scheduled to be released in October. But on May 27th, news of the uncovering of the remains of 215 Indigenous children on the grounds of the Kamloops Indian Residential School in BC has prompted us to release this episode now. And by the time you hear this, there will likely be more graves found. Accountability by government and churches who helped run the schools is being urgently called for. For those of us who are settlers, we have work to do, to own our role in the story of colonialism. And so today, we are turning the microphone on ourselves. In this episode, we talk about the Mennonite Church's participation in the residential school system. We hear from Merle, a former residential school worker who has spent the majority of his adult life working to be accountable for that legacy, and encouraging fellow Christians and settlers to hold themselves accountable too. This story, or elements of it, may be uncomfortable for some. If you are triggered by what you hear in this story, you can call the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. Here's the episode. And again, this was finished before the news of the 215 children in Kamloops. I started into this thing with almost no awareness of my own worldview like most people at a young age just just aware of what we think but not aware of why we think it you are now listening to undercurrents my name is kano gasawara and i'm part of the community engagement team at mennonite central committee in ontario this podcast is an ongoing experiment to find a new way to tell the stories coming from our community of partners program participants and others Undercurrents is brought to you by Kindred Credit Union. Kindred's purpose is cooperative banking that connects values and faith with finances, inspiring peaceful, just, and prosperous communities. As they seek to live out their purpose, Kindred is learning how they can address the historic and ongoing structural violence towards Indigenous peoples who have called this land home since time immemorial to work towards reconciliation. This episode is about Merle, Bonjour, Hello, my name is Merle Nisley. This is a story. This is my story. It's a story of how I began to live among the Anishinaabe of this area. It's a story of the things I learned, the things that they taught me. It's a story of of my being with people who I love to this day. And it is my part of my story. This is Merle Nisley. He was born and raised on the family farm in rural Ohio within a tight-knit Mennonite community. He went to school with Mennonite kids. He went to church with Mennonite families. He played with Mennonite friends. 
I'm number 14 out of 15 kids. My family didn't value higher education. They thought it was quite a stretch to even finish high school. But Merle did finish high school. And after several terms at a Bible college, Merle got a job working construction. So on my construction job, as we talked about our interests day after day about things that I began to hear about a place called Red Lake, Ontario. As he described the wilderness of Ontario and the lakes and the adventures, I was very keen on that kind of thing because fishing and hunting and and the outdoors was my primary passion. This was in the early 1970s, and young men like Merle were being drafted to fight in the Vietnam War, or, as Vietnam rightly calls it, the American War. As a pacifist and conscientious objector, Merle had the option to do alternate service. And one of these options was to do some voluntary service in Northern Ontario for an organization called Northern Light Gospel Missions. I sort of threw myself to be at their disposal. I heard that I was going to be assigned to Popper Hill Development School. That didn't mean a thing to me, to my sort of embarrassment now. I didn't even ask. I just, uh, uh, this is an adventure. I'm off for a couple of years to go do something. Merle's adventure was taking him to a residential school. The first church-run residential school was established in 1831, the Mohawk Indian Residential School in Brantford, Ontario. You can learn more about that school in particular and hear from Karen Hill, a survivor of that school, in episode 6 of season 1 of Undercurrents, called Save the Evidence. Over the next century and a half, over 150,000 First Nations, Inuit, and Métis Nation children were forcibly taken from their families and sent to residential schools. An estimated 4,100 children died of disease and malnutrition, but the real number is likely much higher, as record-keeping at the time was poor. Churches played a key role in the administration of these schools, providing both moral justification and the labor to run them. And though the Mennonite Church as a denomination did not officially enter into a formal partnership with the federal government, individual Mennonite churches and volunteers across Turtle Island did participate in the running of both residential and day schools. Of the 15 residential schools in Ontario, three of these were run by Mennonites. Wabun Bay Academy, which included Stirling Lake and Crystal Lake schools, and Poplar Hill Development School. All three were in northwestern Ontario. They operated between 1962 and 1989, affecting the lives of over 600 children and their families. While broadly speaking, the church justified its participation as, quote, mission work, the federal government was much more explicit in its motive. Duncan Campbell Scott, mastermind of the residential school program, infamously said, and I quote, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. I do not think, as a matter of fact, that the country ought to continuously protect a class of people who are able to stand alone. Merle, however, didn't know any of that. So in 
so I was flown into a remote uh, village. It's about a, a hundred kilometer flight from Red Lake to Pauper Hill. And uh, I was dropped off there in October of 1971, uh, right after freeze up and uh, found myself in the middle of a little Mennonite culture with uh, 50, roughly 50 indigenous students uh, on a campus there. I went out every day and and did my job cutting firewood. I quickly sort of um, migrated into some mechanical repairs and things like that with few questions asked. The first thing on the agenda is to get a haircut and I was taken to uh, a place where they cut my hair. They didn't even want the students to see me with my hair the way they were until I sort of fit the, the mold. I didn't register anything other than my survival in that culture, my job, the expectations on me. And I was, I was surprised at how regimented a day's schedule was. I had little contact with students except at meal times, uh, recreation times. I, I just had no regular interaction before in my life with someone whose culture and language and skin color was that different from mine. I started to really want to know what their lives were like but I really, really was was fascinated with their language. I was really uh, fascinated with with their stories, with their with their background. But I had I had little little opportunity. By the second school year, I felt more at home there, and I felt a, a little more confidence to to pursue some of my interest in their in their lives and one of the ways i did that is that there were two young men indigenous young men who had been students at that school before and came back as uh as staff members and so i had the freedom to talk to them as as adults, uh, especially on the days off that those uh, that those young men had, I would learn vocabulary from them. I would ask them. Uh, I, I would. I, I wanted to learn bits of their language. I I didn't imagine I would become fluent, but I I wanted to learn, and I kept asking them things about. I wanted. I wanted to learn outdoors things. I want. I wanted to learn what they know. Even as Merle became more comfortable with his place and role at the school, there was a growing awareness of what was going on around him, including the jarring transformation of the children from their summer with family to their first day back at school. Some of the adjustments, I observed the way their clothing, 
the guys' haircuts, how everything changed from the time that they stepped off the airplanes a day later, what they looked like when they first came to a meal. The long hair was gone. The girls were all wearing dresses. The clothing was the same. You know, I had similar patterns, similar quality, similar everything. I remember that, how it impacted me to watch very young kids uh, who were who were crying sometimes uh, because it was their first time away from home, between six and eight, maybe, or 10. That age group seemed especially emotionally unsettled. They were seeds of things that I didn't even realize were happening in me. I, did, I still didn't know how to put stuff together. I still didn't know how to ask the best questions. And I don't know if I would have had the courage to ask questions if I had thought of good ones. Uh, I remember a time when when a young male student ran off. I remember that when that young man was brought back, one of the ways in which he was made an example for the others is that his hair was cut very short. I remember being impacted by how he then stood out as an obvious offender. I also became aware of the corporal punishment. I, I began to hear what a traumatic thing that was. One of the men who also lived in the dormitory was involved sometimes. And I remember it being a big deal for him. It was not just somebody administered a spanking. It was, uh, it required witnesses and it required, it required additional physical strength there to make sure the situation that, or that the resistance by a student didn't get out of hand. I can't describe what happened. I just knew from the little bits of body language and from talking until it wasn't like my experiences at all. I never, to this day, have never really asked them. I don't know, for some reason, I really don't, didn't want to know. Those things began to accumulate in, in my spirit, in my mind. I didn't know exactly what to do with it all. Other things that that were brighter, for example, on Sunday afternoons, going snowshoeing or uh, playing hockey, I kind of I look back on on most of those relationships with the young males as having a, a fairly fun and relaxed relationship with them. Northern Light Gospel Missions had people living in all these communities. Uh, some of those people were the role models. They were the ones who, 
who opened my mind to, oh, that's a way that you could relate. And, and I started to see that what they're doing is what I want to do. That's how I want to relate to the indigenous community. I want to live there. I want to learn to speak like them. I want to learn how they think, how they live. And that's what started to contrast with the artificial environment that I was in, where our people created the environment and brought people into it. I wanted to reverse that and be a part of the community in their environment. Merle finished his service term at Poplar Hill Development School after two years. He returned to Ohio with his wife, Rita, whom he married during their service term, and after two and a half years away, returned to Poplar Hill, again with Northern Light Gospel Mission, but this time to live within the village of Poplar Hill, an indigenous community. One of the things that really gave me uh, a level of comfort and welcome, our organization did not put people in a community without permission, without an invitation. Merle and Rita lived as part of the community, building relationships, learning indigenous stories and culture. He studied and eventually became fluent in Ojibwe, a language he retains to this day. This new way of being with indigenous peoples contrasted sharply with his time at the residential school. And as years went on, Merle wrestled with his complicity in the colonial agenda. What's hard about it is admitting how naive and unaware we were. And it's hard to believe that there wasn't maliciousness. I have lots of friends whose story is quite similar to mine. Uh, Maybe not the ending, but at least the beginning is very similar. When we look at it now, there was sin and there were threads or instances of malicious intent and evil. Just a complete unawareness that there's a sinister plan in the background somewhere that we're cooperating with when we actually think in our simplicity, think that we're doing missions. Yeah, God's work. God's work. The Mennonite Central Committee was privileged to be able to invite seven survivors to the closing ceremonies as part of the TRC hosted by Canada. The seven survivors who attended brought with them um, stories around their own residential school experience. This is Lindsay Mullins-Kuna, the program coordinator for MCC's Indigenous Neighbours program in Ontario. 
The TRC is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a groundbreaking investigation into the history and impact of residential schools in Canada. The TRC, which lasted from 2009 to 2015, heard testimonies from over 6,500 survivors of the residential schools. Lindsay followed the TRC closely over the years, participating in events with Indigenous friends and partners, and eventually journeying to Ottawa to attend the TRC closing ceremonies. After days of more story-sharing, events, and rallies at which tens of thousands marched the streets of Ottawa, Lindsay describes the electricity in the air as the head commissioner, Justice Murray Sinclair, was about to reveal the final report. I can only compare it to, um, you know, being in Union Station, Toronto, um, at rush hour when people are running for their GO train. It felt that way. Um, It was that important that people get to where they needed to be um, in that moment. And so I was one of those folk and it was standing room only. Seats were filled, aisles were packed, and um, all around me, bodies were pressing up against me, and it was the same everywhere. There were dignitaries, politicians in the front rows um, representing our country, and and that was very important. Um, and Justice Sinclair then began to speak. It was um, unforgettable. Um, He talked about the courts and the system that had examined the stories of the TRC. And he then wrapped up by talking about the findings. The period from Confederation until the decision to close residential schools was taken in this country in 1969. Canada clearly participated in a period of cultural genocide. People hugged strangers. Um, we were <laughs> we were um, in tears. People felt vindicated. All of the people, um, survivors sitting there, felt vindicated. What's the story? What's going on? Is sort of the question. Merle understands the confusion and defensiveness of many of his peers who served in residential schools, who now hear their time of service being called cultural genocide. What opposition, what enemy force, what evil is rewriting this story and, and, and changing it and, and saying that we we're all wrong and and all of that. Looking back at their photo albums and in their journals as time when they gave of themselves to needy people somewhere, the people whose stories are similar, whose beginning stories are similar to mine, it's been my mission to help them uh, work through that if they will so it's been very encouraging that some people 
their their response is, what can I do? For settlers who have accepted the truth, the question of reconciliation now comes into focus. Commissioner Murray Sinclair said that truth is easy, reconciliation is harder. Lindsay, who has been at this work for nearly 30 years, cautions us against rushing into action. We just need to be careful as settlers, careful in a way that lets us walk forward. I was reading um, on the weekend Marlene Castellano and um, she was the the dean of uh, at the time native studies at Trent University when I was there in the 90s and um, a brilliant woman a brilliant Mohawk woman but she cites another author in um, in her document and um, who talks about ethical space and it is space where um, there is no owner, there is no um, one in charge, and the space is shared between settler and indigenous folk, where ideas are, are put down on the floor in a good way. I asked Lindsay what creating ethical space might look like practically. What are the things that settler folks like me can do to practice this different way of relating with Indigenous peoples and history? Um, What people can do when they're having a conversation that involves um, sharing the land, land acknowledgements, um, programs in their churches or organizations, schools, um, is they can ask who's speaking into this. They can ask that question of themselves. Who's speaking into this? Who's here? Who has part in this moment that we're creating? It can be anything from reading a book to, you know, planning an elders conference at Trent University. Um, it It could be any one of those moments in between. I think that that's how we need to be held accountable is to be willing to walk into a space where we have no control. Um, and, and that's something that we as settler people have trouble with. Um, you know, that control piece, the fix it piece, um, the helping piece. And, um, We can't be there as all those things, as settlers, um, in, in a new space, if you will, in a new, in a new way of thinking. And it will take some time. It won't happen tomorrow. It can't be part of a five year strategic plan. It can't be, um, something that we put on paper and say, we did this.
Lindsay and Merle first met at a small TRC event in Thunder Bay, specifically for survivors of the Mennonite run residential schools. Merle was the only one there representing residential school staff, and Lindsay, with other MCC leadership, had stepped in to represent the broader body of Mennonites. It was a powerful event for both survivors and Mennonites, and Merle became a friend of MCC's from that point on. Several years later, Lindsay invited Merle to another TRC event at Conrad Grable University College in 2013, called Mending the Sacred Hoop. She recounted this story to both me and Merle on the phone. We had um, a circle of 50-plus people there. Some were Indigenous, um, most were not. Most were settler folk. Um, Nishinaabeaski Nation was there. Um, they were there as, as helpers, emotional helpers, um, along with us, because we did have some Indigenous folk. We, had, we invited Merle to come to the event and, and to talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. And um, to our surprise, <laughs> Merle stood at the podium and um, read that apology. And it was just so incredibly powerful, Merle. You'll never know. Um, like how it was received by others. Um, and Andrew Wesley, um, the elder who hugged you, is a dear friend of ours. He was an attendee of St. Anne's Residential School. And so it was he who, who hugged you in the center of that circle in front of participants that day. And um, your apology was, you know, um, so poignant and, 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 you know, to the point, um, you know, really got down to we are sorry. And you actually say those words which so many other church groups are afraid to say because of legal ramifications. The I'm sorry, you know, those two words. And, and you say it several times and you say it around, grouped around um, different actions. And um, so it, it's a very, very powerful apology. Thank you. Those details are very helpful. Bring back a lot of, of the reality of that event just to hear you say that. And, and I appreciate it. Thank you. This is the apology that Merle read. This is an apology statement to the former students of Poplar Hill Development School. And it's from the current representatives of the administration and staff members of the agencies that operated the school. We have heard the expressions of genuine pain in what you have said about the schools and your experiences there. We are doing our best to understand you and to empathize with you in your journey to healing and resolution. We sincerely acknowledge and validate your perspective on your school experiences. Our apology includes the following specifics. For the times when we physically inflicted pain or added to the pain of your soul by our actions, 
we are sorry. For the times when we underestimated or ignored the impact on you of your separation from your family, we are sorry. For the times when our ignorance or negligence caused you to suffer additional emotional and physical pain at the hands of other students, we are sorry. For the times when school personnel were not properly screened and when personnel were not adequately trained to relate to you in culturally appropriate ways, we are sorry. For the times that we acted as though we were culturally superior to you, we are sorry. For the ways in which we cooperated with the national plan to force your assimilation into Canadian society, we are sorry. We pledge ourselves to the ongoing healing process by offering ourselves to you for private conversations or with a third party present as you wish. Please consider our apology and our desire for truth and reconciliation. It is a conflicting thing in one's heart and mind when you when you feel you've done something when you feel you meant well but it is really important that we who who think our stories started out as naive and well-intentioned it's really important that that's not how we either rationalize or justify or explain the important thing really is owning the effects we must own the whole story merle has lived and worked for over 40 years in the red lake area in northern ontario with indigenous communities and with settlers in a lifelong effort to own his whole story but if we find ourselves saying in our secret heart well, at least I didn't work at a residential school, or I would have known better, then we are missing the point. If you are a settler, as I am, on this land that we call Canada, then we have our story to own too. We have our own obligations, to unlearn our own biases and racism, to relearn by listening to the multitude of stories, the wide spectrum of Indigenous lived experiences, to march in solidarity at the invitation of Indigenous people, with deep humility, courage, and integrity. Because unless we are actively working to dismantle colonialism within ourselves and within our systems, we are complicit, as Merle found himself to be complicit at Poplar Hill. I want to thank Merle for sharing his story so openly and candidly, and Lindsay for modeling deep listening, patience, and centering Indigenous voices in her work and life. And to the survivors of residential schools, to all Indigenous peoples who are surviving colonialism as we speak, and especially to those who did not survive, I am sorry, and I recognize, like Merle does, that an apology is not enough. Once again, for those who need support after hearing this story, the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line is one 866 925 44 one nine. And I've included this resource in the show notes as well. Also in the show notes is more information on the TRC Calls to Action, 
which include action specifically for the church, as well as a link to Merle's reflection after reading about the uncovering of the graves of the 215 indigenous children in Kamloops, BC. This episode was produced with help from Shane Oluwa-Ake, edited by Kristen Kong, and mixed by Francois Goudreau. Original music by Brian McMillan, and cover art by Jesse Bergen. Huge thanks again to our sponsor and community partner, Kindred Credit Union. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please write to us at podcast.mccio.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Finally, I would like to thank you for listening to Undercurrents. Please subscribe and give a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Ken Ogasawara. Have a great rest of your day.